Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Today, for episode 19, we're finally, at long last, finishing up with our read of Cain's Law, which will wrap up our time in Matthew Woodring Stover's The Acts of Cain. Uh, as is customary with, you know, our episodes in this universe, I'm mentioning once again that this episode going forward will not be censored. Because if we did, or rather if we paid Pat to, all of our all of his free time would be gone. And this episode would probably end up somewhere around 15 minutes. Uh, so in the interest <laughs> of, you know, keeping this thing natural, you know, providing our unadulterated impressions, I will absolutely... Uh, we, we have free reign to use any and all of the colorful language of Kane. Right, fuckers? <laughs> yes. yes. And uh, I'd also like to give a quick shout out to our first $10 patron supporter, Simon Jester. Simon, welcome, my friend. Now, it's important to note that this isn't just some person who named their online handle Simon Jester. <laughs> yes. This is the real Simon Jester. Yeah. In the flesh. This, this, is, this is the uh, penal colony moon AI from uh, Robert Heinlein's classic... Uh, science fiction novel, The Moon yes. is a Harsh Mistress. Correct. <laughs> and apparently they really like our podcast. I feel, I feel blessed. Yeah, it's so, great. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad that we have um, uh, extraterrestrial supporters already. <laughs> yeah. We, we just got a message the other day with our first South American supporter, and now we have somebody from the moon. No kidding. Awesome. We are, I was going to say international, but that is even more than that, I suppose. <laughs> and soon the world. <laughs> yeah, I, <know. laughs> so, I mean... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so, you know, you know, joining me today, as always, with our Acts of Cain read-through, are my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going? And our master of all things sound, Pat McCaffrey. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, I will start off by saying this. Um, apparently, the novel was originally titled His Father's Fist, which I think was a much better name both metaphorically and aesthetically. But after reading this one, I really want to propose an alternate name. Check this out, okay? Oh. The Acts of Cain, book four. It's complicated. <laughs> how, how about Do you know raining how many weird? fucking times we heard those words in this book? It's complicated. I mean, if I, I kind of wish I had this one on e-reader as well, because I would actually be able to do a search in book function and tell you how many fucking times we heard those words. And, uh... Yeah, it had to be at least 20 times, I'm thinking. And judging by how I feel now after, you know, after the fact, they were all deserved. I mean, this book was complicated as fuck. How did, yeah. how did you find it? Yeah, I, I was overwhelmed the first time I read this book. I've okay. now read it three times, and I'm still a little overwhelmed. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I have, I, I think I have a pretty good grasp on the events of Kane's Law uh, entirely. And and I I understand kind of thematically what he was going for. Um, I there are still some of the uh, like scene level events where I'm just like, man, I don't I don't know where this fits in. Like, did this unhappen? Did this happen in a different timeline? Did it happen in between Kane Black Knife and Kane's Law? Like, like the opening scene of the book. I I don't remember if I brought this up on the last episode. Uh, because it's been about a month since we recorded. There, there's been, yeah, been quite a lot that's happened. Uh, I went off to JordanCon for a week, and so we missed some time in there. And then just life in general got in the way with Easter weekend and everything. As it so, does. Uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's been a while since the last episode, and I don't remember if I called this out. But that opening scene where you get like the broken and bleeding cane climbing to the top of the, the spire to the Purificapex. Good lord, his, the words, all the Krillian words in this. Uh, yeah. yeah, in the in the audiobook, I think it's Purificapex. 
Purific Apex? Okay. Yeah, as in Purific Apex. Just, I guess, mashed together in one word. Yeah. Um, but, like, I don't understand where that scene fits in. Because it's, yeah, no, it's, I... it's Cain, like, going See? up and grabbing the sword, the sword of man, Kosal, this, this both literal and metaphorical sword, and... Mm. Through that, building a connection with the outside power, with, you know, the Diltalon, Pyrrhacomp, whatever you want to call it, and and then saying, I'm not going to kill you, we're going to make a deal. And it's like, okay, okay. <laughs> how, like, where does this fit in? Because there's like, that can't have happened in the timeline of Kane Blackknife, because we have, we have an unbroken oh. timeline of... Uh, <laughs> and Sorry, Rob's... keep going. I just have a bit of a beer spill here. Drew, my friend, take it away, man. I'm just gonna kind of <laughs> deal with this while you go. Um, but as, as I was saying, we have kind of an unbroken, you know, uh, narrative where we we have uh, Dominic Shade showing up in Perthens Ford and doing his things in Kane Blackknife, mm-hmm. and then he gets captured at the end of Kane Blackknife, and he's taken through the Dill to Earth. And is offered this deal at the end of Cain Blackknife and accepts it at the beginning of Cain's Law. And that's where he sets off all this, like, crazy time stuff because now he has the powers of a god and he can, like, break the covenant of Pyrrhacanth and go back and stuff. But, uh, so, so it can't occur from there. Mm. But then we also see Jonathan Fist where Cain goes back to, to change things in Perthens Ford. But it doesn't fit in there either, because again we have an unbroken narrative of what's going on with Jonathan Fist in that, where he ends up, you know, he, he uh, orchestrates the whole uh, scene, the spectacle at the uh, the duel between Orbeck or not Orbeck and um, our champion of Krill, who is no longer our champion of Krill, Lady Angvas. And, uh, and and there's just no room in either of these narratives for that scene to take place. But because it takes place at the beginning of the book, you know, it, it, there's clearly importance in the scene. And I'm not sure how it fits in. Like, well, y- you know? Yeah, I th- you know, Stover is aware, I think, of what he was doing because, and I couldn't find this in uh, the... Uh, the uh, Google book that I was actually searching through for some quotes. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't include this at the very beginning, but the audiobook included this. And it was a quote from Stover himself, or I should say a quote, just an author's note. It starts off with, did you start off with an author's note in your, uh, in your hard copy? Where he says, like, some, some events in yes. this book take place before, after, and some never yeah. took place at all. Yeah, yeah basically, yeah. It, what he says word for word is, uh, see here. So, several parts of this story take place before the events depicted in Act of Atonement Book 1, Cain Blackknife. Other parts of the story take place after. Still other parts take place before and after, both. Some parts may be imaginary, and some were real only temporarily, as they have subsequently mm-hmm. unhappened. And I, I think this kind of literally tells you everything you need to know, because, mm. I mean, this book was all over the place. Was all we are, over the place. We're left to determine for ourselves, in a lot of cases, what we yeah. think happened. Like, I think this might be or one didn't. of those parts imaginary that Stoker yeah. was talking about. In well, this and, case. So, I, I'm not sure. Like, I just... There are so many different ways 
even among those options given to us in the author's note, that that scene could theoretically fit in. And and yeah. one thing that really like makes me wonder if it did happen or not is that this book is so non-linear in narrative. Oh my god! Very okay. purposely non-linear, and it ends with the prologue. The last section, the last page and a half of this book is titled Prologue. Yeah. That and if he's the shit out of me on my first listen, if he's you know putting the prologue at the end, might this scene at the beginning not be an epilogue? Oh, yeah, uh, you know I hadn't for some fucking reason I hadn't considered that. That's a good theory, and it does not, it does stand to reason. It does stand. Yeah, I agree with Pat. I just I'm still trying to wrap my head around it though because we still don't really have much context for what the hell is happening right. in that fucking scene. Right, yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I was not personally, like, speaking, just diving into Stover style here and my points there, I was not a fan of this kind of nonsensical, nonlinear, and counterintuitive narrative. I mean, this book jumped all over the place. Yeah. Uh, it, it was hard to follow, and I, especially, you know, with me. I was listening um, to an audiobook because, you know, I'm back to work uh, full-time and a half now. So I'm listening to the audiobook, and boy, oh boy, this was a difficult one to kind of just I get wrap my head around to say it again. I mean, there were parts when I was okay, hold on, what the fuck is happening? I have to rewind <laughs> again. And I, I'm used to doing that because I get interrupted here and there by coworkers. You know, I'm still at work. I still have to do my job. It's usually, you know, fairly often I have to stop and rewind and listen to something again. But with this book it was a whole different beast entirely. I mean, usually there's still, you know, a linear <laughs> you know, a linear component yeah. to the narrative. If you go back far enough, you will still be going backwards. But in this fucking book, sometimes I'm missing things. I'm rewinding four minutes, but chronologically speaking, I'm still going forward in time. And it just, it, it fucked me up so much. And mm -hmm. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm worried that that really impacted my overall opinion of this book. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine doing this on audio, especially for the first time. Like, I mean, we did have a lot of time in between, like we mentioned, last podcast and this podcast. We've had a month, probably. I've listened to the book three, four times, four times in some parts. I still don't fucking understand a, a, a large part of it. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it is an involved book. It's, yeah. I think in, in the review I wrote of it after I first uh, read it, I, I called it like a, a runaway roller coaster, basically. Mm. Where Point. where it was it was this crazy fast paced ride that just went off the rails and uh but then after reading it a second and third time now i'm like okay maybe it didn't really go off the rails so much as the rails don't behave according to the laws of physics okay well now yeah. you're starting to sound like the horse witch <laughs> yeah <laughs> well what you said makes sense and what the horse witch says often doesn't yeah okay. yeah well it, Fair. And so or it doesn't make the sense that you want it to me she's <laughs> yeah. such a she's she's a weirdo but you know well, I, that's, I actually well, kind of like her uh, so. that's what happens in my opinion with postmodernist philosophy yeah it's 90 percent bullshit and 10 percent inversion yeah it's like no you're not sitting there watching the tv the tv I is sitting there watching message. you that's what's happening <laughs> damn that is a dark and we get a lot of that in yeah. this book and 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 it's funny because this book is so heavily philosophical. It it brings some, uh, some of the ideas from Blade of Taishal full circle, 
Yeah. Um, where where Heroes Die and Kane Black Knife were a little more straightforward adventure novels with a, a bit of you know f- political philosophy thrown in there and stuff and 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 literary criticism. Uh, Blade of Tyshall and Kane's Law are much more focused on philosophical themes and stuff like that, and so it it brings it full circle, of course. And uh, it, I think he ends up running into a bit of an issue with some of the philosophical elements he raised in Blade of Taishal and, <laughs> and uh, needs to uh, not subvert, but to oppose them in this book. And, and the biggest thing is, is what we talked about on our Blade of Taishal episodes, how when Kane was in the pit, he comes to this sort of uh, realization. He has this personal apotheosis regarding choice and how nothing really matters everything's a coincidence and and the only way to get through is to recognize that i need to assign my own meaning to things and i need to make my choices and fuck everything else except when we get to kane's law we see that like you can't operate like that you can't have that sort of purely nihilistic worldview you can't truly ascribed to Cainism as a philosophy. And, and you know, we get so many times over the course of this series where people ask, why? Why did you do this? And, and Cain says, reasons are for peasants. You know? Yeah. And, and he says, you know, why? it doesn't matter why. And then all Cain that matters is, addresses this. is the, uh, yeah, he says, all that book. matters is the act itself, and then mm-hmm. you deal with the consequences later. And in this book, though, we see that no, there are reasons, and even Kane has reasons. Yeah. And and I think there's one one of the chapters uh from Duncan's point of view in the in the now of always, you know, the little campsite god space that Kane set up to build his whole plan in this, uh, where he's talking Duncan is talking with the horse switch and he realizes the why is the horse switch. The why is love. And and that ties back, even though this uh, contradicts some of those philosophical themes from Blade of Taishal, it it uh, matches the subtext of the previous three books, where it doesn't matter how much Cain protests that reasons are for peasants and that why doesn't matter. Cain always had a why, and it was always because I love something, because I love my family, I love my wife, I love this world. And... Here we see once again, love is the driving factor, and it is his love for the girl who died in the stable fire, mm-hmm. and he did all of this to make her yeah. not die. I mean, that's what the novel is named after, Cain's Law, as you mm-hmm. find out in this book, it turns out to be a metaphor for love, which mm-hmm. kind of, you know, it would come across as cheesy uh, if it wasn't explained over such a long and you know you know complicated but still kind of fulfilling narrative i i was still and i don't understand why but by the end of this book i was still a little satisfied despite the fact that i was still so confused and it's a very (laughs) weird feeling yeah yeah right Um, i thought i mean i i was definitely satisfied yeah right like on my second reading my first reading i finished this book and i was unsatisfied because i didn't understand everything that went on in yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> Pretty and, sure and when now I that I, I understand much more about it, I'm like, okay, yes, this, like this came together, you know, order out of chaos kind of thing right at the very end. 
and also the the last scene of the book is just one of the most badass things ever where where the dragon flies overhead yeah. and three other dragons follow it and they're they're just like how oh, many dragons man. do you think are on Otherworld? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, I mean, yeah, it was great. Um, going, <laughs> st- speaking on Stover's style still in particular, like, I want to know what you guys thought about the chapter epigraphs and how they actually reference back um, to quotes from the actual, the previous books. Um, like, I thought it was kind of cool. Like, I thought it was, it was a, it, sorry, it added a nice sort of flavor of nostalgia to the whole thing, you know, remembering where <clears throat> where this journey started, remembering the different points along the way, and being able to directly, ke- you know, contrast those sort of ideas and those character moments um, with what's happening now. Like, with Kane's character, we have an entirely different view of Kane in this book. But, again, still, though, like, what did you think of the chapter epigraphs? Was it, like, appropriate? Or uh, would you have done something else, perhaps? I, I thought they were good. I'm glad they were there. Mm. They kind of gave me the impression that um, he had planned the story and the uh, the the arcs well in advance. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or or he's just smart enough to know he's smart enough to a be consistent and b use his consistency at the appropriate times. I mean, he did seem to choose the the perfect quotes. Yes. To begin off these chapters, so you know. He either had to do a lot of homework on himself, or he just has such a vivid memory of what he's written that he was able to perfectly insert those appropriate lines at the, the appropriate places. So, so there's an ironic aspect to this in that, um, yes, it's been consistent the whole time from book one to now, but each book has been substantially different in the way it's written and the way it's played out. Mm-hmm. Uh, most notably, this last one, as far as style and aesthetic go. Um, yes. So... Regarding the epigraphs, I I loved it. Uh, I've read enough books, especially science fiction and fantasy books, that use epigraphs in some manner or another. You you have, you know, uh, Brandon Sanderson's famous for this in Mistborn and the Stormlight Archive, where every chapter has a an epigraph that ties into some greater narrative in some way. Uh, you know. You get, like, Scott Lynch in the Gentleman Bastard sequence who doesn't do one before every chapter, but does one before each part in the book. But those epigraphs are, um, like, real-world quotes from, like, Scott Lynch's favorite poems. No shit. And, and short stories and it's things like that. It's been a while that. since I read Lynch. Uh, I actually and, don't remember that. And so what uh, Stover has done in this is something I haven't encountered before, and that is using quotes from real-world books but using his own books. And instead of just using, like, a, you know, a brief quote for a thematic, uh, you know, touchstone at the beginning of a, a chapter or a, a part of the book, he has those lines very specifically either mirror moments in the chapters or foil moments in the chapters where we can see right there reading this quote from... Harry Michelson to Duncan Michelson 30 years ago and then seeing how much Harry or Kane or Jonathan Fist or Dominic Shade or whatever you want to call him, how much he has changed as a person from you know, his his younger years to now. And then seeing quotes from Heroes Die and seeing how much he's changed from then to now. And things like that. So I thought it was a really uh, deft narrative device. And regarding Pat's point on on 
like how it seems like he either was smart enough to use things going backwards or he knew what, in advance what he was planning on doing. Uh, I think he must have known in advance. Uh, just oh, really just from my own, you know, my own experience with writing and, and writing sequels and like, it doesn't matter how many times you've read your own book. Nobody knows their own book that well. Like that, that you could just be like, Hmm, you know what? As I'm writing this other book, I'm just going to take this one line that I remembered yeah. from three books ago. Like, like he, he You'd had have to be to like a literary savant to be able to pull something mm -hmm. off like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like even like I will admit for uh books that I plan on writing in the future, I do make you make use of chapter epigraphs or maybe it might just be parts of the book, but I still do and I have a lot of them written already. I do love the aesthetic of it. And in this book, I felt like it, he carried it. He carried it off really well. Um, yeah. Do you guys want to start talking about our impressions of uh, distinct characters? I'd just like, before we jump into that, to contrast sure. this and another book, um, Crime and Punishment. Now, I'm going to talk about Not it one a read. lot, but, um, you know, I, we don't need a spoiler alert for this. Like, it's a fucking classic. Like, if you haven't read it by now, then it's your Crime and fault. Punishment. Um, uh, about, uh, like, they're almost inversions of one another in the, the philosophy behind Crime and Punishment is tied up in the plot, which goes something like a man sets out to um, commit a murder um, and he has every justification for doing this and the world will no doubt be a better place without the person that he's going to kill. The lives of everyone that that person is involved with will be better. Um, but when it comes right down to it and the murder is committed, uh, uh, the author puts forth that no, it's this is still not justified. Even though all of these potential good things could come out of it, this act was in in itself a bad thing. Now, uh, let's looking at this book for a minute. Kane's notion of uh, all excusing love, very reminiscent of Circe in Game of Thrones and her <laughs> uh, her her much vaunted love for her children contrasts with that rather sharply um it's not so much even that kane is trying to excuse the things that he's done because of his love he it's almost that they don't even matter because of his love yeah i get that and, I, 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 and i'm not denying that his love is real and that it has an effect on him but we as the reader or at least i had to ask well does love actually excuse anything? Does it make anything... Uh, does it turn any act that in other situations right. we would, which would be considered evil into something good? Yeah, and, and it's... It, Stover kind of makes us a bit of a trap in this book because he, he sort of obfuscates that philosophy or, or the implications of this philosophy by the fact that Pretty much most of the results of what Cain is doing for his love turns out good. It's like for the better, right? It's it's stopping the the blind god. It's it's preventing the the horrific destruction via virus of ninety five percent of all sentient creatures on Overworld. It's you know it, it's breaking down the caste system and and rebuilding a like a fairer government on Earth and and things like that. So it's it's easy to root for him and sort of dismiss 
his philosophy as as like something that like oh of course it's good look at look at how it turned out mm-hmm. um but but it's like it's also right there in plain sight because Kane talks so much in this to Duncan about how you make this choice and you you pull the sword out and you say yes who knows what's going to happen mm-hmm. it it's could it could you know and and that that in the moment uh you know, textual thing there has the same sort of implications on if somebody actually tried to live according to this philosophy of love excuses all. Because, yeah. you know, who knows what, like, there are unhealthy kinds of love or infatuation and, and things that could drive somebody to do horrible things. I would argue that that's the love that Circe feels, certainly. Yes, yeah. And yeah, and what well, to a lesser extent, Kane. Kane is not on the same level as Cersei. Yes, in that regard, at least some of Kane's motivations are good, or uh, the results that he wants to achieve are good. I should say. Yes, yeah. he might be motivated to try that for different, more complicated and, reasons than. And even like the worst thing he ever did, I would say, arguably, is was like the genocide of the Black Knife Clan, and. And, you know, we're humans reading this from a human perspective, mm. so, like, that comes off as, like, kind of a good thing. Like, this super sadistic, evil, inhuman horde of o- ogreloi, like, oh, yeah, like, they torture people to death. Of course they should be killed in, in mass. Like, of, of course it's not a problem that Cain broke them. Mm. But, But at the same time, you have to consider, like, you know, you, you bring that to to our real world terms, and and how many times in history have cultures looked upon other cultures as inhuman savages mm-hmm. and perpetrated horrific crimes on them? Like, and and even even today, you know, you still have some of these like rabid, you know, nationalist <laughs> and political agendas that see other human beings as less than human, and and this is one of the brilliant things o- about speculative fiction about science fiction and fantasy in particular is is how you can draw these parallels uh that as a reader you can choose to read a little more closely and dig into them and consider what it means for you in the real world and and kind of be self-reflective about it or you can just read through it and be like oh no it's just like a cool assassin story where this guy came out on top like yeah the the road to hell right yeah (laughs) Um, but yeah, speaking that... though on on Kane's whole philosophy, do you want to dig into his character and uh, discuss exactly where it went and how we feel about that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> Kane. Rob, kick it off. Yeah, I'll kick it off. So you know, as I mentioned earlier, we get to see an entirely <coughs> different side of Kane in this installment. Um, we see him more overtly compassionate than we've ever seen him before. Uh, there, you know, there's the horse he saved, and I have a quote written down here that was very you know definitive for me. He said to the horse, don't be afraid. I can't promise you'll never be hurt, but I will not hurt you. I will never hurt you. And if I might ease any of your pain, I will. That's not who I used to be, but it's who I am now. Don't be afraid. And I I read that, or rather I heard it, and I thought, what a stark contrast to the man that we just finished reading about previously in Cain Blackknife. You know, this man who would commit genocide, the burning of Ogrillo cubs, to, you know, just for his reputation, mm. for money and fame and respect. Um, and I do want to say, I think it's 
a mark in Stover's favor that he can affect such a change without making it feel too alien, you know. Uh, Kane somehow still feels like Kane, despite all that we see him do and, and learn that he's done and that he will do, he still feels like Kane. And I think that, like I said, is just, uh, you know, a huge point in Stover's favor. Yes, I very much agree. Uh, I thought yep. he did a, a masterful job of developing Kane's character and making changes to his character surprising despite setting a very thorough groundwork for that development like you, you know and 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 he was able to do it i think in this book because he got to play around with timelines and we <laughs> got to see with. kane during you know a version of the faltane county war and afterward and we get to see him still being you know the ruthless Kane, who's just meeting the horse witch and just starting to change. And, yeah. uh, and, and so when you get to jump around in the timeline a little bit, it, it's like, all right, we don't see most of the actual change happen. Most of the Kane we see in this book has already undergone this transformation. Hmm. Which, you know, in the in the now of always scenes and and the Jonathan <clears throat> Fist sequences when he goes back to Perthens Ford, but then, you know, we like I said, we see those reigning weird and horsewitch scenes where he's just starting to learn how to be a better person and and how to be more empathetic, and uh, and so it's like the foundation's there. It makes sense that later in the book when we see him as Jonathan Fist going on his like adventure through time with Angvas, uh that that he's so kind but even then in those scenes like like when he goes in to to buy the horse from that guy right to rescue the yeah. horse and any that scene where you're talking about when he ta tells the horse he won't hurt him but he goes in into that inn hoping he gets an excuse to kill someone oh yeah that's that's something that Angvas had confronted him about or yeah. was it the horse war? No, it was it was on. It was on boss. Yeah. yeah, she confronted him about it. She said, "You went in there to start this." Like yeah. then Kane's defense is, "Well, I didn't tell him to pull the knife." Speaking of leading to one of the my favorite one-liners in the entire book, we'll discuss that later. But you know, Kane's whole defense was, "I didn't tell him to pull that knife." You know, and it, again, he kind of applies this means justify or the end justifies the means kind of philosophy, where he says, "Who cares? He's rich. He's temporarily rich, right?" Mm-hmm. He's, he's happy. It's, it's like, well, you kind of put a blade through his arm and threatened his life and humiliated him in front of everybody. He, whether or not you believe he deserved it for the treatment of his horse, I, I think that's kind of aside the fact of what Angvas was clearly confronting him with. It was his attitude, his approach to the problem. Yes. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, I, yeah. I get why Stover didn't um, give us this uh, moment of catharsis that we would expect to see in any other work of fiction he's he's trying to imply that changes this profound can only occur over time mm -hmm. and like okay that's that's fair, all well and fair. good but and and true but i think you'll find that if someone is as far gone as kane was in order for him to start that long process there has to be a moment an event, something that jars you out of your sense of what's comfortable. Because Cain, in his murderous ways, was comfortable in those ways. Just like anyone else would be. 
you know, having lived with himself for that many decades. Um, well, so there... I'm just a little like, hmm, what's what's the moment for Cain where he decides he needs to change? It's when I don't even the, think we got him. It's when no, it's when the girl died in the stable fire. Oh, okay, but this wasn't. This isn't the Kane that we know. <clears throat> this is an alternate version of Kane. Well, it's it's the original Kane, and it's so the, the Kane the blacksmith who, or whatever. No, no, it's no? it's Dominic Shade who went to Perthens Ford at the beginning of Kane Black. Oh, Knife. and then she burned. So, so before the events of Kane Black Knife, the Faltaine County War happened. Yeah, and she burned in the in the fire, and Kane then left and went to Perthens Ford. And got captured and takes the, you know, the, the oil in the deal with, or non-deal with the Board of Governors at the beginning of Cain's Law. And when he becomes a god himself, he breaks the covenant of Pyrrhoth because he's the sort of man and he can do that. And he goes back and rewrites history. And, and the rewriting of it is having her be the horse witch instead of just some girl that Cain fell in love with. And so he created, he unhappened the whole original Faltaine County War where she died specifically to bring her back. And that's what the one, the one chapter toward the end is. Uh, it's, I think, I think it's the, the now of always. And, uh, um, like the now of always six or seven, maybe. And it's called all about the girl. And then Now of Always Ten is called Reasons for Peasants, and it's basically this whole flipping of it's like, no, reasons are not for peasants. Everything yeah. has a reason. Yeah, I think it was Do uh, Dominic, Jesus. It was his father uh, that, uh, that uh, approached him with that, that line and said, I guess in the end it really is all about the girl. So, was that his father that said that to him? Yeah, so the, the Now of Always Ten is like the final chapter in the book. And it's from Duncan's point of view. Yes. And uh, it starts off with, Cain and Milecoth converse softly, some distance away. Chris and Ongvas walk together idly among the trees. The horse witch braids her garland, and Duncan finally gets it. Ah, he sighs into the dappled green. Ah, of course. He understands now, or thinks he does. Someone unhappened the slave woman, and now there is a horse witch, which means she can be unhappened too. And that's why Cain wants Duncan to make this choice and pull out the sword so that it can't be unhappened anymore. Oh. That it becomes permanent. Shit. Okay. There's a little click there. Okay. Okay. Uh, and it goes on. Whole, he says. A whole myriad of things just made sense to me. Okay, yeah. go ahead. He, uh, Duncan says he's done this, is doing this, is rewriting the entire structure of reality for you. She smiles past the flowers. That's very romantic. With a capital. That's yeah, what, I think that was what Duncan said. Next well. Yeah, I yeah. remember this. Okay, yeah, yeah. That makes a little more sense now. Okay. So. Yeah, I mean, hell, since we're on the subject of the horse witch, you want to start discussing her, or is there more about Cain you want to dive into first? Uh, not right now. I have a little more I want to talk about, but we can yeah. save that for, like, kind of last thoughts. Before sure, the end. sure. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, oh, actually, oh, shit, what am I saying? There's, there was one thing I wanted to bring up about Kane. The fact that we finally get to see him challenged in the form that is the man, Tucker, or slash Tanner, whatever you want to call him. I fucking loved that character. 
I was endlessly I, I was going to say we got to talk about Tanner after the horse switch, but we can oh, talk about him sure. right now. Well, I mean, I, I just, the reason I wanted to talk about Tucker slash Tanner is, is, is because, I mean, I'm pretty certain the reason I love that character so much has to do entirely with his interactions with Kane. So I feel like oh, it kind of oh, follows yeah. that up nicely. I mean, we, we never threw out, you know, Heroes Die, Blade of Taishal, Kane Black Knife. We never really got to see anyone challenge Kane, at least, you know, well, in Baron. terms of just banter. And wit- oh, oh. Would you well, say well, banter was on the... No, uh, not on... was on the... Not in terms of banter. I thought you were saying, like, physically challenging, oh, like, I in mean, one-to-one combat. Yeah, yeah, no, sorry. I mean, even <clears throat> while Koth wasn't very challenging to, to Kane in one-on-one combat, like, you know. Like, it was, it was Baron, and the reason Baron was that challenging was because he had all of these magical effects from Milecoth, where he was faster and stronger and could be invulnerable temporarily and things like that. Still not invulnerable um, to a kick to the nuts, though, was he? <laughs> oh, well, Milecoth wasn't. Well, yeah, that, but you said it came from Milecoth. Sorry, I should have specified but, what I meant there. Yeah. But uh, but despite that, though, like throughout all the books, Kane repeatedly says, yeah, I'm a monastic. I'm far from the most dangerous yeah. one. Yeah, well, he has a whole little part, the whole little diatribe. And diatrib- finally, we get it. to see one yeah. here where, where he's like, I've been telling people for years, yeah. I'm not that dangerous compared to some of the people the monastics have. Yeah, this not, guy right I'm not here, even close to the he best. might be one of the best. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm not even close to the best. This man, Tucker, he's close to the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. But then he, he admits that, you know, he uh, he doesn't really, he hasn't really affiliated with many of the uh, mm-hmm. monastic assassins. Um, what, a, but, what a great moment was that when, when Tanner showed up on Earth at the end oh as like a God. social police. So many great one-liners undercover. happened just like, in the five minutes that followed. <laughs> It was great. I, I mean, I fucking loved it. And just the fact that he was not only able to take on Kane, like Kane says, not only are you as, you know, not only as, like, you're as good as people think I am, mm-hmm. I think was, the, was mm-hmm. what he said to Tanner. And I was like, God damn, this, that's a remarkably humble but terrifying thing to say when you're listening to Kane say it. Uh, but just the banter. The, the 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 witty back and forth and the way he shuts down everything that Kane even says. I mean, no one's able been able to do that to Kane up to this point. No one's been yeah. able to shut Kane down or at least you know go toe to toe with him in a match of verbal wits. But holy shit, I'll give it to Tucker. He fucking took the cake on that one. That was yeah. We'll uh, we'll revisit some of his lines uh, when we get to our favorite one liners <laughs> at the end oh, shit, here. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I definitely like Tanner. He was an interesting new addition. Yeah, to it, the cast. It, it almost made me wish that we got him earlier in the series. Yeah, not he yeah, would have been fun. Give yeah, her a he fucks. Was, Tanner like, was. He, he was a he was a fun <laughs> character in a series that doesn't have many fun characters. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of like heavy weighty characters who who you know push the limits of what you're comfortable reading in many cases and and even those who don't it's just like all right you know like you know this is uh you know this is a, a sad or or trying character arc and then tanner he's just like yeah man i'm just out here doing my job like yeah. <laughs> cracking wise and he's not looking for a bigger picture you know <laughs> tanner tanner fits whereas if you i mean you could drop lift into this book and she would die of apoplexy in about uh, yeah. five minutes, yeah. as would many other of your standard comic <laughs> relief like ed- characters. Oh uh, yeah. I'm gonna open another beer. Let's pray for me. Hope this one doesn't explode everywhere as well. <laughs> yeah. A no, we're good, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Hey. 
Uh, yeah, let's let's move on to the horse witch. Regarding the horse witch, I'm a little ambivalent about the horse witch, as I'm sure a lot of people would be. Um, and as Pat said at the top of the podcast, she seems to say a whole lot of nothing, uh, regardless of any sort of even unconventional wisdom that I can attempt to spin it with. You know, uh, she said, st- uh, no, she's still inexplicably likable. And I don't know why I kind of like her. She's just, she's a very kind person, again, in a, in a book or a series filled with so many ugly things and people and events, you know. I, but she's still, for some reason, to me, likable. And I think this stems from hearing her tell, in part, from hearing her tell Palace Real off in such an eloquent yeah. way. Um, and I, have it, <laughs> I have it written down here for those who just want to hear it again. Do you know why he hasn't killed you yet? It's Faith. He loves her, and he doesn't know what destroying you will do to her. But I do, and it's not much. So you should be nicer to people. You should (laughs) understand. I'm trying to help you, even though you don't deserve it. Eventually, he'll believe me about Faith, and then he might just execute your slag-ass river bitch. (laughs) I was like, oh, damn, that was good. That was right on par. Favorite horse witch moment. Oh, my God. That was right on par with Binnisman in Wizardborn. Telling that one guy. Oh, my God. That was... I mean, I'm not going to spoil that particular spot for somebody who might want to go back and read that for themselves. But that was a great one-liner, too. Like This was right on par with that, I think. That was great. Yeah, and and that's what, like, the horse witch is kind of as a character. She is what she says, which is amusing for a character who... who, who, uh, (laughs) who doesn't talk much and doesn't like talking, but she is what she says. And, and it's not like she is what she says she is. It's she is the words she speaks. And, you know, and so you get a lot of these things where she says these like cryptic, weird, like what, 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 are you, what did you, things, all right, yeah. I'm just going to gloss over that and move on. But then at other points, she says <laughs> things that are, that are either at turns deeply, you know, profound or else have these startling moments of levity yeah where where <laughs> she adapts some of like kane's language and mannerisms just out mm. of nowhere and you're like whoa didn't see that coming <laughs> were you being a dumbass oh i loved it <laughs> yeah loved yeah it. yeah she, she was definitely a source of unexpected comedic relief at times unexpected mm-hmm. being the keyword there for sure yeah, like, so the first time I read these books, I didn't really like the Horse Witch much. I thought, like, she was good for a couple of one-liners, and that was it. And and I remember, like, because I liked Palace Rill a lot the first time I read through. And I was disappointed with the way her character ended. And and I, I always kind of wished that she and Hari, or she and Kane, could have ended up together. But mm. after reading through a couple more times, I... I have a greater appreciation for the horse witch and I see how she is specifically constructed to be a match for Kane. Yeah. Oh, she is such a perfect match for Kane. Such a perfect match for him. I did like that. He ended up with her over uh, this is, I guess in in a manner in which you and I differ drew. I just, I really didn't like palace real all that much. And I was really glad that, that Kane found someone else, especially someone else on his level, if that's the phrase you want to use. Yeah. Someone who yeah. can, you know, tame him. Well, you and know. you were just talking earlier about how few characters there there were who could verbally yeah, no, spar exactly. with Kane, no and shit. that is the Horse Witch. Yeah. yeah <laughs> of course. Well, her, though, it's it's because she just... 
It's not in the same way as Tanner. Tanner is just very clever, I suppose. The horse witch just takes what you says and what you say and just rips it up and shows you the pieces. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, she just yeah, she's she's different, but she still gets that job done. So I think she's perfect for Kane. Yeah, agreed. I'm profoundly yep. neutral about Palace Rill as a character. <laughs> profoundly um, neutral. But uh, I like it. Uh, their relationship, Kane and Palace's, that is, is. Their feelings might be genuine, but that doesn't mean that it's a good relationship. Yeah. And that's kind of the conclusion that we have to come to, that mm -hmm. Kane is better off with the horse witch uh, than Palace. And so oh, I yeah. was satisfied in that in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wish like there had been m more of a, an opportunity for them to work out their dysfunctional relationship instead of mm. just having her die. Like, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can but, see that. But at the same time, it's like, with it. you know, when you consider it, there really was a lot of time for them to work on it, and they didn't. Just yeah, all there that were time years. appeared. There were six years between Heroes Die and Blade of Taishal, yeah, I yeah, think, right? like, all that time just didn't appear on the page. So, mm. yeah. you know, it, it, the, the end result, I think, is a healthier relationship for yep. Kane. The author had other plans. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Chopped in half Absolutely. by the undead, possessed corpse of Baron. <laughs> Not a fate that anyone would envy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but but moving on, I want to just talk briefly about uh, Gail Keller and Simon Fowler. Robable. Sure, I didn't really write down anything about them, but I can just give, you know, basic impressions. What did you want to say? It's cool to me how he made them into sympathetic characters by the end of this book. Were especially they, Oh, I, I certainly think so. Uh, they, they were at least pitiful. Um, yeah, oh yeah. They weren't pitiful. contemptible the way, like, like the way Gale is is built up in Heroes Die and Blade of Taishal when he's Hari's secretary. Like, he's just a smug little rat, and you hate him every time he shows up. And then in this, he's a broken man. He realizes that he's ruined his life by doing what he did, and... And Cain even sees that in him and reaches out to him and offers him a chance, both both Gale and Simon, especially Simon Fowler, uh, because he's got, you know, his family and he's got cancer and all this, and Cain, like, sets it up so that he can be cured and everything at the end. Um, you know, and, and, and that, I think, is a hallmark of Cain's change, where in the past... He never would have shown any kind of mercy or or empathy toward an enemy who screwed him over the way those two guys did. Oh yeah, that's for sure. So yeah, yeah, and 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 then you know, of course, it ties in also where I think it's a little bit of it's a little bit of showmanship, but also a little bit of empathy. Where Kane asks Simon Fowler, he's like, or or was it Gale? Uh, at the end where he's like, hey, you should step up to the window here. You're gonna want to see this. Oh, yeah. And then we get his... Yeah. <laughs> I did like the fact that, I mean, again, as a closing scene, I think it was a nice choice by Stover to show exactly what's happening on Earth. And um, just... just we, we get to see... I think, you know what, Gale might have been the perfect person to show that to, to get their reaction. I mean, mm -hmm. then again, one could argue that fucking anybody would have that reaction. It's to dragons flying through the yeah, fucking well, even, sky. Even Kane says, like, in that scene, he's like, even he... Was trying to keep yeah. his jaw off the He carpet. was trying to keep a poker face, but even he couldn't. I mean, it's not often you see fucking dragons flying through the eye, and he's like, guess how many fucking dragons we still have on Overworld? And you're like, yeah. oh, 
<laughs> you know? <coughs> yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Yeah, he's like, your technology doesn't work on overworld, but overworld magic works here. <laughs> in, in a lot of limited ways, I suppose. I mean, Kane wasn't able to completely obliterate all the Sekmen's heads past a radius of what it was, like a mile or two? Uh, yes, but there are Dylan all over the Earth. Oh, there are many, yeah, and they can come out at... They don't know where all of them... Even yes. the people on Earth don't know where they're all located, but the people on Overworld do. Yes. Kane does, and he can show up at a moment's notice at any of them. And so... And I love the fact, so can Angvasa. Mm-hmm. Mm. That is awesome. The, the idea of a hero that can just pop up wherever she's needed, or at least close to wherever she's needed, that's fucking cool. Yeah, should we go into Angvas? Because Yeah, sure. I mean, I've only got one further thought about Angvasa, like past uh, what I what you know what I went over last episode and um that is just that she is still such a badass and I would say that I like Ongvasa especially by the end of this and seeing you know how vital she was and how honorable she was I would I would say that I like her even more than I did Maraud but we did see her do a few inappropriate things you know yes. depending on who you are I would I guess as Kane would say whatever floats your boat but some of those actions aren't exactly ones that I can condone, so... Yeah, and, and of course there are some excuses to be made for that particular scene where, like, she's, she's literally going insane. Like, oh, yeah, she's you know, just... But, but because of that, I loved yeah. her character after being yeah. the champion of Krill. When she re returns to being, you know, just, like, a human. Yep. She's no longer a whatever theophanic fetch... Uh, because that scene humanized her, not in a great way, when she assaults Kane. Yeah. Not in a great way, but it humanized her. And then the rest of it is, like, showing her making human mistakes, not to the extent of, that she did in that scene, but making human mistakes while also retaining the, the purity of heart and the heroic aspect of her personality... And the resulting Angvas that we get during, you know, her little adventures with Kane and, and things like that and to the end of the book, like, I love her. She's maybe my favorite character in this series, with the yeah. exception of Kane. Damn. Damn. I mean, she, I, I still came out of it liking her, but uh, I don't know. I just, a bit, of, a bit of her earlier actions kind of tainted it for me. But she did definitely go somewhere. Um Somewhere that I approved of afterwards. Yeah, like, I, I loved how she, like, she just got this great liking for beer and would just walk around oh. everywhere with, like, a keg of beer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I did, and she did have a few epic one-liners and a couple oh, just yeah, shining we're gonna, moments. We're going to get at least one of them from my three Oh, for sure, definitely. On, so. Oh, you only have three? I thought, I, was, I just wrote down a fucking shitstorm of one-liners here. I got it. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> well, maybe not a hundred, but yeah, I got a lot of them, and and some of them did come from Angvas. Like she was, she was yeah. awesome, and not just one-liners, but she had some just straight up badass fucking acts. Like when when she was fighting with Kane, and she picked up that one guy with one fucking hand and <laughs> threw him overhand across the room into the fire. I mean, <laughs> holy shit! That that moment to oh. me felt like when you get like a a new hamster. And then the dog, just, <laughs> the, the dog just picks it up and fucking runs with it. And you're like, no, 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 oh, shit, no, <laughs> fuck. That, that's that's kind of what it felt like to me. You know? oh, but no, the, the other scene with her that I loved was uh, when Kane goes to get uh, Toronel's 
you know, blood or, or hair or whatever he can get his oh, hands on. Oh, yeah, she wrecked And Kane's, like, just getting <laughs> wrecked in the street, and the, the yeah. ogres are, like, chucking, you know, just, like, steel ball bearings at him at, and like, stuff. 400 miles an hour, just blasting shit up. Oh. Yeah, and then and then she shows up, and he's like, hey, yeah, she's a knight of krill. You don't want to mess with her. And they're like, oh, yeah, whatever. And he throws <laughs> one at her, and she just, like, catches it and throws it back at him, just, like, blasts his fucking the... skull. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Yeah. And 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 then all the like dozens of Kieran dolls, uh, you know, security. They're like, yeah, I got something to do uh, back there. Uh, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> urgent business was discovered elsewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she did have her shining moments. I will give her that. Oh. It was enjoyable to read. Yeah, she needs to run Earth for a little while. Oh, after their little coup, I would love yeah. that. I would yeah, love well, that. who else is gonna do it? And we still got this remarkable moment of of. This kind of this t- this touching moment of humanity when she was told by Ravenlock that she resembles greatly Krill himself, and that yeah. she's she's a very honorable, and then he re- she reminds him of Krill, and she just she's brought to tears. She, I'm unworthy of of that kind of yeah, praise. She's and, so pure hearted, and I love yep. her. Like yep. <laughs> she's Immature, the only naive, probably truly naive. good person in all of well, except for maybe Maraid. Maraid, but... yeah, it was pretty fucking cool too yeah, yeah. but but yeah i i just on Voss is awesome she's a fantastic character and and i'm a lot honestly yeah. i think i was shipping on vasa and kane more and than kane? anybody oh else. yeah yeah it was it was there and at one like, point he even describes her as they a definitely sexually had... butch 20 something year old maybe a little old for her but <laughs> yeah yeah uh yeah. you know th- there was there was definitely sexual tension and and mutual attraction between them but but I don't think she could have dealt with Kane on an emotional level. She she doesn't she doesn't have the equipment, yeah. the mental fortitude to deal with Kane's baggage. Like <laughs> she does kind of yeah. She Kane to her does she if her interactions with Kane kind of feel like uh you know a kitten with an interesting toy. You know like sure, she's yeah. just she's found she's fascinated, but she doesn't quite understand that this is a dangerous toy and that. She, Things are going on more than she knows. Yeah. And she doesn't really right. quite get a, a sense of her own kind of naivete. But, I mean, by the end, she definitely does. And I still liked where she went. Angvasa was cool. She was a cool read, and I liked pretty much every scene she was in. Pretty much. Who really can deal with Except for the emotional one. baggage? Yeah, that's why I added the, the horse witch, part. apparently. The horse witch and... Almost. And, Jesus, and, and the horse witch, like... After five years of medical school? Like And the horse witch... <laughs> The only reason she can is because Kane literally reshaped the fabric of reality to create somebody who could deal with him. Like, I mean, if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna use your godlike powers to get a good girlfriend, well, then you're doing it What's wrong. the point of godlike powers, then, right? <laughs> Jesus. What is the point if you're not like? <laughs> but you think he would cry? He would, you know, invent or, or create somebody who speaks a little more fucking sense. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> don't you want to understand at least half of the things that your fucking betrothed is telling you? Dude, Wouldn't it's it be a woman. Nice you're not going to understand at least a fraction of them. No matter whether whether the the woman is a construct or a, a biological being, you're not going to understand anyway. Yeah. So, <laughs> as Robert Jordan said in the Wheel of Time, as well try to understand the sun, right? Oh, I thought you were going to yeah. do the uh, women were made to please the eye and trouble the mind. Oh, no, that's a very controversial <laughs> thing to say. Yeah. I, would, I would hazard in this 2019. 
That's yes. well. The, re, the even in the book, it said you know that the men of Emmons Field only said that when they were very, very sure that yeah, people like Nynaeve weren't right around the yeah, corner. There were no members of the women's yep. council were yes. in. You know, the uh, read the wheel of time. Damn it. ready to hand. Hell yeah, yeah no, no, yeah. no. Wait to read the wheel of time until we start oh, well, diving yeah. into it, yeah. which yeah. should be you know sometime in the next like couple of months somewhere in there. Yeah, probably. we're uh, looking at starting that pretty soon. Anyway, here first. Uh, anyway, um, are there any other characters that we want to talk about? Because uh, otherwise, I, I think we should talk about the series as a whole. Well, I'd just like to throw out that I liked that there sure. was a little bit of Milecoff in this book. Yeah. Because it would have felt uh, wrong, almost, to end the series without uh, without seeing him yes. a little bit more. I agree, uh, because he's he's such a pivotal counterpoint for Kane. Yeah. Throughout the first two books, and then and then was absent entirely from the third. So the, the flavor that he lends is nice. Yeah. Well, uh, do you want to talk about uh, like the you know our reflections on the series as a whole right now, or would you rather yeah. do the one liners right now and then close with our reflections? On oh the yeah, no, let's do the one liners. Let's do the one. Yeah, the one liner sounds pretty good, right? <laughs> okay. I mean, I'll, I'll start with one right now, and then I'll throw it uh-huh. off to you guys. So as we just briefly mentioned, Angvasa. Rescuing Clane, uh, Clane, for fuck's sake, Kane, fuck, Kane, <laughs> from the ogres and the treetoppers that were bearing down on him in the street. The next who raises hand against him shall raise no further hand in this world. Yeah. Fuck me, I would not mess with somebody who said that. I, so, I really wouldn't. So I, I, I have a, an Angvas line as well, and this is, um, after... You know, she she helps Kane out with the the dudes in the common room when he buys the horse, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, you know, Angvas comes out the door behind me. Krill's love has restored his arm as well as the other's burns. Yeah, thanks. I shoot her a look. She's got a, one of those ale casks and a rope slung over her shoulder. I see Krill's love has also restored your <laughs> beer supply. She sets it in the dirt, and I have yet to assay its quality, which is as well. Alcohol seems to make me disinclined to overlook the imperfections yep. of others. Yep. Yep. Oh, such a brutally honest and well cle- the clever <laughs> fucking way to put it, but yep. Oh, I love it. I love it her, so much. Her verbatim is clever, is fucking brilliant. Pat, you want to throw one at us? Uh, uh, Pat has stepped away for just a Oh shit, a second, I just opened but... the thing. I saw Pat had stepped away for a second. Okay, I'll throw but another one. He, he usually um uh takes a step back here cuz he doesn't love the hu- the humor in these, so no shit, eh? Ooh, interesting. Um, okay, so let's see here. Uh, so Kane to Tucker. I'm gonna have so many between Kane and Tucker. Um, <laughs> near the end, as he's Kane is squeezing more oil out of the guard's body. Okay, he's answering Tucker's question, and he explains that the blood is more like their god's blood, more or less. And then he tells Tucker to step back. This could get a little entertaining. And Tucker goes, "Yeah, good thing. I was about to doze the fuck off." Oh, yeah, I fucking, yeah. I fucking, I went, ha! really loud oh. when I was welding. It was great. Okay, so, so you, uh, <laughs> uh I have a, a similar, um, <laughs> a, a similar quote, uh, with the horse witch and Kane, and it's towards the very end, and, and he's, he's trying to convince her to tell him what happened in that unhappened timeline, you know, with the yeah. slave girl and all that. And he says, will you tell me, please? And she says, you may find this difficult to hear. 
Yeah, that yeah. would be a damn shame, considering how the rest of it was a fucking carnival. Yep, <laughs> yep, I have that one written down here, too. That's one of the ones. It's so good. Oh. It's it's so fucking good. Um, I think my favorite in the entire novel will be my next one here. Oh, yeah. It's, it's when Kaiges says to Kane, my first word can make you beg for death. And then Kane's epic fucking response, your entire fucking vocabulary can't mess up my hair. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, it was so good. How do you respond to that? I mean, she did somehow, but how do you fucking respond to a burn that well? Oh, it was good. So, uh, my, my next one is, it, it's actually repeated a couple of times, and it's even better the second time. It's when Kane is trying to get to, trying to find out what Tanner's real name is. Yeah. And he says, he you has... can call me Haywood, Lord Jablomi, Jablomi. Marquess of Jamet, and the 11th Earl of Up Your Ass. Yeah. <laughs> and then the course... second time he starts saying, and, and Kane's just like, God damn it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Tanner's second time saying it are literally his dying. Well, I mean, Tanner's first time saying it, I guess, would be his dying fucking words. Yeah, it's the rest uh, vanished into the blinding yeah. yellow flare of power. Because <laughs> Kane just loses patience and shoots the motherfucker. Like, he can't even, he just can't even deal with this. That's why I love Tanner so much, because he's the only person <laughs> that can get under Kane's skin. I mean, there are people who yeah, piss oh. Kane off. There oh, are people yeah. who Kane will fucking, will burn the world to watch them burn with it. But there's no one who got under his skin like Tanner did. Yep. Ah, what a oh, yeah. fucking brilliant character that was. <laughs> um, so there's another quote I want to bring up here. Uh, let's see here. Okay, so it's, it's, it's Kane himself um, explaining something obviously colored by his language. Jareth is a suspicious bastard by nature, and instead of shaking Krill's hand, he whips out the sword of man and lop lops it off at the wrist. Krill's hand falls to the ground, and Jareth says, And I take your hand to demonstrate my wish for all you shit-swallowing scum humbers to fuck off and die. But I'm willing to talk peace. When there is true peace between us, I will happily shove this so far up your ass, you could scratch the backs of your eyeballs. So now I laughed aloud when I heard that. That was great, you know. And then I realized on my second read-through that, you know, Kane claims to be paraphrasing, but after we really know about who Jareth really was... That it's very possible he said exactly very, those very words. It's very, very possible <laughs> that he said those exact fucking words. And I loved it. I really, really loved it. Yeah. Um, my, my last one that I had highlighted was uh, the description of the like the days and the whole arena set up for the duel between Ongvas and uh, Orbeck and and he says like uh men wearing the mirror polished full plate of Krillian lords sat in six of them these would be the lords legendary every single one of them a former champion of Krill and each very high on the <laughs> list of people who should under no circumstances yes. ever be fucked with <laughs> like i i there, there are a lot of those lines, and I think I brought up a couple of them in King Black Knife, where whenever he's talking about Knights of Krill, just like how you should just, they're like the, without spoiling anything, they're like the Bonds Magi in in the Gentleman Bastard sequence. They're, they're like you, uh. if you know what you're about, you don't fuck with them. They will ruin your day, like, <laughs> and and yet Kane just continually fucks with the Krillians. Yep. Yep. Stick your hand in the fire. <laughs> uh, <coughs> there was a moment in, in uh, Horse Witch 4 to continue here when 
the horse which is telling the story. Who actually, I, I totally forgot to to talk about the story earlier. I want to touch on this right after, um, after we're done with our one liners here. Mm-hmm. But the horse which force says of, of this girl who she used to be in another you know reality, her earliest memory was a rape. And then Kane says, Jesus. She says, is that a name or a curse? And then Kane says, both. And then I laughed out loud because in that moment, I remembered the first scene in Kane Black Knife when he says, my name is a C word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it kind of just gave me a little giggle when I realized what exactly Stover did on that yeah. particular line there. Nice, nice. Um, and uh, yeah, I just have one more, I suppose, from Raining Weird 2. But this, is, this wasn't really so much um, <clears throat> of a funny line as it just blew my fucking mind when I realized what exactly I had heard. And again, this oh. is one of those one-liners that really gets you. It, it, it goes right by you on the first time. But on your second read-through, it means something entirely <laughs> fucking different. It was in Raining Weird 2. The horse witch says to Kane, You might face justice someday if there is such a thing. And, it is unlu- and if it is unlucky enough to find you. Absolution is between you and your god. And when she said that, I realized what Stover did. She said, you might face justice someday. You know? And then I remembered that scene where Cain recognized himself in the mirror as the man who had walked into the clinic on that day when he was a boy. And to me, that was just such a huge, huge defining moment. I was like, holy fuck. Do you, like, do you think that's exactly what the horse witch was talking about? Ooh, I don't know if it's exactly what she was talking about, because but I, Jared I do think is justice. Yes, that's what he is. I do think that uh, Stover was writing that to specifically create a callback. Hmm. I don't know. It's really spoke to me that one. That one fucked me up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and there's another honorary mention I have here. It was in Tomorrow's Yesterday Three as Kane is sneaking up to the Sentry. Um, he internally thinks, you know, if this boy had enough training or natural discipline to hold still, he might have lived through this. But you know, boys and toys. And my brain went, oh, he's masturbating. And then Kane continues with, he can't stop playing with his new knife. And I went, what the fuck is Stover doing to me? <laughs> like, that's not a thought I would have had in any other fucking book series except this one. And I had a real introspective moment there. I'm like, what the hell? It's really tough, and I'm glad we're finishing this fucking series, because yeah. I don't like what it's doing to my brain. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely so, one of those ones that's unique, and you have to take in reasonable, measured doses. Oh, yeah. There's a reason we had to do Skyward in the middle of this series. Yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, well, we definitely did. As an interesting oh, yeah. segue into the series yeah. as a whole, um, yeah. I honestly felt that after Blade of Taishal, the series kind of went downhill. And this book, the ending of it, while I was satisfied with a lot of the things that happened in the plot, um, felt almost anticlimactic because of all the weirdness that was going on. It was hard to Agree. Uh, build up 100%. the tension and whatnot in uh, the traditional sense. Um, and, you know, I can appreciate a work that's out of the ordinary every now and then. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, those are my two senses for the, the way it ended. Heroes yeah, no, die. Agree. Heroes die could have been, as we mentioned before, uh, it's its own standalone book, and oh, yeah. most of the time, I think it should have been. Yeah, because um, I I'm not convinced that the journey from Blade of Taishal to where we end with Kane's Law was worth the heavy price that we pay <laughs> for 
for reading Blade of Taishal and for reading Kane Black Knight and for putting up with the weirdness of uh, of Kane's Law. But you know, I, I think I agree with everything you just said. Yep. But this is why we have conversations. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so I I want to save Rob's reaction till till the end because you're the new reader here. Sure. Okay. And and uh, my reaction to this. You know, this is my third time reading through the series, as I've said before. This is one of my favorite series I have ever read. It is not without its no problems, as, okay. as anybody who's listened to our whatever, like, seven episodes we've done on this, like, ten hours of content. Uh, I have had plenty of uh, criticisms. But overall, like, taken as a, a completed work... I'm blown away by what Matthew Stover did as a writer, how he took a, a trilogy, a trilogy of four parts, but a trilogy, there are three acts, and made each act work with each other and tell like a full story by itself. Because when we're talking about Heroes Die, like that could stand alone. Really you could read just Blade of Taishel on its own and get a completed story. He gives you enough of the background information. He gives you enough of the world building. Definitely would and gives it, you though. And gives you a satisfying, concrete conclusion. Could you imagine just reading Blade of Taishel? Oh my god. I mean, yeah, that would be, that would be that quite would be an experience. So but, but you could do it. it. It's a completed... I guess narratively would ...concrete sense. narrative that has tie-ins to Heroes Die and... And uh, Kane Blackknife and Kane's Law. So, so we have. I mean, what? I know the third act is the act of atonement. I think Blade of Taishal is the act of war, and then I don't remember what what act Heroes Die was. But but each of the acts is its own story. And again, you could pick up Kane Blackknife and read Kane Blackknife and Kane's Law and get a complete story that you would mostly be able to understand by itself. And this is something yeah. that is super rare. You'll get lots of series where the first book can stand alone because that's how people wrote for a long time. Like before yeah. publishing companies, you know, uh, started raking in the dollars for these mega series like The Wheel of Time and The Sword of Truth and A Song of Ice and Fire and Malazan and things like that. Uh, it bothers me that Sword it of was, Truth is on that list, but it is. Well, yeah, it made a ton of money. But, uh, but writers would write one book they're like, all right, I have an idea for a trilogy or a five-book series or whatever, but they wouldn't get a contract for a whole series. They would write one book, get a contract for that, and then if it sold well, then they'd get the contract for the rest of the series. And that still happens uh, to an extent today, but but there is an opportunity to just like get signed to a you know blockbuster seven-figure contract like. Like uh, uh, Jen Lyons, for instance, uh, from from Tor Books, she just published The Ruin of Kings, which is the first in a in a new fantasy series, epic fantasy that she signed this mega contract for, and Tor really wants this to be their new big like the next Sanderson kind of thing. No shit, and, uh, that's why you were touting trying to dive into this one so much, yeah. But and and yeah, we'll we'll cover that probably Eventually. a little later this year, definitely for we'll it, yeah. for the podcast, but. But so it's common to read the first book in a fantasy or science fiction series and have a completed story and be like, all right, you know, I liked that well enough. 
I didn't love it, so I'm just not going to read on because I have a, a completed story. It is uncommon to read the second book and be like, wow, okay, that also is a completed story. And then read the third installment, and that's also a completed story. Like, this is rare, mm -hmm. what Stover did here. And he did it in a manner that each of the four books, as Pat mentioned earlier, is wildly different in, like, tone and structure from the others. He does crazy yeah. things with point of view. He does crazy things with timelines and tenses. Like, this is a really, really ambitious literary work, which is rare for especially, like, a 90s, early 2000s science fiction fantasy work. A lot of the time, it was, like, very pulpy, poppy, like, let's make some money, you know? And, and Stover basically said, you know, fuck that. I'm writing this crazy, deep, philosophical literary work. And, and while he didn't always nail it with those aspects, especially on the, on the philosophical side... Um, he, he still did it and more or less pulled it off. Like it's just, it's just a really, really impressive work of writing to me. And that's why I love it so much. Hmm. So what would you say is your favorite book of all the four? Your personal favorite, not what you think is the best book, like, you know, from a literary standpoint, what was your favorite? If you had to choose. This is such a hard question. Like, <laughs> I mean, for me, I, I would say it's Heroes Die. Heroes Die. Yeah. Yep, so, same. so. It, if if it's in terms of like rereadability of a book that I'm like yeah you know what like I want to sit down and reread this mm -hmm. it's probably Kane Black Knight yeah or if I'm gonna recommend it to a friend or something well well I mean if I'm gonna recommend it I'm gonna give them Heroes Die but <laughs> well but of course, no, no, I suppose start them with Kane Black Knight yeah. Yeah. I mean yeah I like I said I could say like hey read this and and they could do it but yeah that's part of what you're saying but man I like. There, there are things that Kane Blackknife does, that Blade of Taishal does, and that Heroes Die does, that, you know, because they're such wildly differing types of books, it's hard for me to choose. Um, if you That's read, why I asked the question. I knew yeah, it was going to be a man, difficult choice. This is, this is a tough question. If you really pinned me down, I would probably say Heroes Die. Same. Um, yep. But I think Kane Blackknife Black is the most would be close. fun. Yeah. <laughs> And Blade of Taishal is the least fun. It's also... <laughs> but it's also the biggest and most The most impressive. So. Yeah, yeah, it's the most impressive. Yeah, so, and then Kane, Kane's Law was just crazy. fucking nonsense. Like, to yeah. me, it was nonsense. Yeah. I, just, I feel like... <laughs> I, I could have finished the series with Kane Black Knife and been satisfied, honestly. Well, um, except there's no conclusion. That's such that's a That's fine. It would have been better than the nonsense we fucking got. That's <laughs> uh -oh. what I'm trying to say, I okay, guess. Well, I don't know. All right. All right so, yeah. Rob, move into... Okay. Let's, let's get I, your reaction. First time I'll reader. I say, as a first time reader, I enjoyed the acts of Cain overall. I really did. Though there were times when it was hard to remember why. Um, Stover's <laughs> characters are fucking superb. His prose is excellent, if not particularly original in delivery, I guess. But his knack for one-liners is equal, in my experience, to only one, and that is Scott Lynch, who we mentioned yeah. earlier in the podcast. Though on between the two, I found Stover's setting and pacing a little more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. um, and for those who don't know, like my one attempt at reading Lies of Locke Lamora ended up with <clears throat> kind of me just losing interest in favor of another book that was just being released at that time. And I never really got motivated enough to return but oh, I, we'll, I definitely we'll return. i definitely haven't podcast. ruled it out for future podcasts that's yeah. for sure um but getting oh, back to hey, stover i had I, no idea 
yeah. Uh, getting back to Stover, though, I think he did some really incredible things. You know, Mile Koth, and of course, by extension, you know, Tunnel Koth, have to be in my list of top three sci-fi fantasy antagonists of all time. Uh, perhaps in the number one spot. And I'm aware that I said a lot of these things about Raj Otten in The Rune Lords, but mm-hmm. he was honestly edged out after five minutes of reading Mile Koth. I mean, Mile Koth was fucking awesome. And I think he was just a, a major component of why I enjoyed these books as much as I did. Um, granted, he didn't have much to do with Kane Black Knife or Kane's Law, but uh, he definitely was a reason I, I, I was so invested, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a majority of this last volume completely at sea, um, <laughs> I'd, I'd, <laughs> but I'd still absolutely recommend the series. It was grim. It was dark. Uh, but it was heart- heartwarming at times, and it was endlessly entertaining with this myriad of one-liners that Stover just served up again and again like hors d'oeuvres. Uh, <laughs> and though he's not a... I will close with this. Though he's not a particularly pleasant person, I do like to think that going forward, we all carry a little bit of Kane inside of us. I don't want anything from Kane to be inside me. <laughs> I want his... I Literally of, or metaphorically. I could, I want his wits. I want the way he just so irreverently doesn't give a fuck about what anybody says. I could I could do with a little bit of Kane's self-assurance. A little bit. Just just yeah. not much. You don't want to be Kane. You just just l- carry a little bit a little bit of him with you. Yeah. yeah. Well well and, and it's something that, you know, ties back to what Pat said earlier like it really does affect your mindset as you're reading these books. Like like you're you you really start thinking and approaching the books in a certain way because Stover's voice as writing Kane is so powerful. Yes. Like it, I mean, it really is right the away. character of Kane is the strongest part of this series. Mm-hmm. And and I have never read a a single character in all of the Many hundreds of books I've read yeah. in my 29 years on this planet, I have never read a single character who so completely commands the page. Interesting. Interesting way to and, put it. And, and you know, and it, it's like, this is why it's one of my favorite series. So. In terms of character voice, I also want to throw another really quick shout out to Stefan Rudnicki, who, aud- who narrated that audiobook. Yeah. What a He's, legend that he guy does a good he job. is. Such a powerful, powerful voice, uh, and it was honestly the perfect choice for that for that audiobook series. He was awesome. What what he did, I may have Definitely. to, I may have to like check out. I may not like oh, go yeah. through the whole series on check audiobook, his, but I'll have to check out some particular scenes. Maybe check out his uh, Mile Koth. It's he's got a voice like one like like honey on warm bread. It's just like it's great. <laughs> oh, he's, a, he's also good in Ender's Game. He yeah, that's whole, what you had mentioned in, our, uh, in Heroes audio. Die Part 1. Although it, those audiobooks it are different in that um, not every character has its own voice, but uh, most of them do. They have like, mm. uh, well, half a dozen, let's say, voice actors. And they all do pretty good jobs. But Wait. Stefan Rednicki stands out as... Um, Who does he do? He does, he does the narrator and Ender. Oh, also, oh also, interesting. Also Graf. Well, that's what I was expecting you to say was uh, graph. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and Mazerak, I mean, uh, oh, very Mazerak, very good. Yes. Have you read any of the Ender books? I read the first. I read Ender's Game, but I didn't okay. follow with the rest. Yeah. Yeah, that's another one we definitely have to do for the podcast oh, at some point. Yeah. But that may be quite a ways down the road. We have a Could lot be. on our plate coming up here. Huh. 
We do. Yeah, my my uh, as far as a closing thought mm-hmm. to leave you all with um, about the series as a whole and its um, place in sort of the structure of the fantasy that we that we have with us. Um, its effect on the genre was kind of negligible, but that's a risk that you run when you are an innovator in a field of art. Now, most of the authors we read, however good they might be, aren't doing anything like this in the sense that it's mind-blowing and original, uh, and it is is an attempt to redefine the way we tell the story. Now, it might work for us as readers, but it didn't really impact the genre much and was before its time. Yeah. Um, The series started before 9-11, and after that event, our fantasy and our stories have been consistently getting darker and darker. How fucked mm-hmm. up is that? that? It's very fucked up. Um, yeah, yeah. You I, think that I, was the... Well, that's a whole other philosophical it, question, though. It, I think it has something to do with it. I don't think it's entirely to do with it, though. I, I, no, I do think there's an impact there. I think there was a an aspect of American culture and American life that... Uh, lived in a sort of idyllic ignorance a, a, a sort of invincibility yeah that was shattered on 9-11 and mm-hmm. and so moving into stories where people make mistakes and people die and nobody's safe uh resonated mm-hmm. and 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 you know this is something i talked about like back in the heroes die episodes and and in my article on heroes die for tour.com and 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 the sort of context of when it was published and how neither Heroes Die nor A Game of Thrones as like mid to late 90s grimdark publications did particularly well until Robert Jordan gave a cover quote to George R. R. Martin. Yeah. Um but but I think I mentioned I said like if Heroes Die <laughs> like with no changes if that exact book word for word had been published in 2004 or 2005 like it would have been one of the most popular fantasy science fiction series of our time because yeah, because the quality of writing is significantly better than a lot of grimdark authors i mean like i've i've read you know mark Lawrence and joe abercrombie and steven erickson and and uh you know like a, a lot of the the new agey grimdark guys and stover's better than all of them i'm sorry like he he's just a better <laughs> writer like sweet like you know Brent Weeks, or I don't know. We, like, we only have the Weeks. best on this podcast. We only well, have yeah. the best. I read, I read Brent Weeks. I read at least the Night Angel trilogy. As far as I understand, the rest oh, of his work is, yeah. is is better than that. But Night compare Angel was, Night Angel to Kane. Like, come on. Yeah, Night Angel was <laughs> fucking rough. It had a few cool moments, but it was yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, from what I gather, like, because I've read the first Lightbringer book, and and I I was I was like, yeah, yeah. this is a little a, better uh, than the series of Pattern of Shadow and Light, or. No, it's called What's Lightbringer. What's the name of that? Lightbringer? Okay. Yeah, the what first book is The Black Prison. Must be oh, that's else. the Sephrael's Hand series. Sephrael's Hand. That's what it was. Um, the ones who said, the ones that kept advertising on Facebook, if you like the Wheel of Time, yeah, you'll like yeah, this. Yeah. So I was like, okay. You know? <laughs> yeah, right. uh, yeah the, the way to get me to not ever buy a book is, if, yeah. is to be like, if you like Brandon Sanderson, this is even better. <laughs> it's like, no, it's not. Shut up. <laughs> I um, know. Like, yeah. comparing, but anyway. comparing Kane to a lot of these other characters, it's like, Trying to get Genghis Khan or Attila the Hun to sing a Panic at the Disco song. There's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's just not. Uh, it's 
what? not going to work very well. Uh, oh, it's, man. It's distinct. That's for it sure. is. It is. Well, so, you guys want to head into the final draft? I think so. Um, and I want to kick off the final draft because I have oh, okay. two different beers. I want to start with the beer that I'm doing, <laughs> and then I'll let you guys go, and then I'll, I'll finish with my second beer. Sure, sure. Uh, so the beer I'm drinking is from Verboten Brewing Company in Loveland, Colorado. A great little brewery, by the way. Uh, this is a whiskey barrel-aged golden ale brewed with orange and cherry. And it's super good. Uh, I'm absolutely blown away. This is like one of the best beers I've ever brought on the podcast. Uh, just, oh, wow. Well, I mean, the, the, the whiskey flavor profile from from that barrel aging is phenomenal the orange is just bright and bursting through it a lot of these like golden ales with you know brewed with oranges they'll, they'll brew it with orange peel and coriander and i generally don't like that sort of flavor like it, it gets kind of like like acrid a, a little soapy sometimes to me uh sure. but this is like oh man this is absolutely freaking delicious uh and it is called A Million Reasons. A Million Reasons. Reasons are for peasants, though. But they're not. <laughs> but they're but not. They're, yeah, they're definitely not. Thank you, Stover, for actually getting around to that. Yeah, eventually, after a long, long time. Yeah, and yeah. yeah I was through many dark places. You know, I was looking for beers for this episode. I, I was really struggling with Kane's Law, where I was like, man, like, this is such a weird book. There isn't this like one overarching like moment or, or, you know, like anything jumping out at me. And, uh, and so I, you know, I just went to my local bottle shop and I was kind of combing through and I, I saw the other, the other beer that I brought today first. And I was like, okay, that's an option maybe. And then I, and then I found this and I was like, I've never had this beer before. Sounds interesting. And I loved the thematic impact that reasons have in this series and how, Stover, because I disagree with his philosophy in a lot of ways, yeah. kind of undercut himself with with the the reasons thing, and and he accepted it by the end. Yeah, uh, you know the, okay. that final chapter is saying like yes, there was a reason, and as much as Cain likes to say there that reasons are for peasants, Cain has reasons. So, yeah, interesting. Yeah, the uh, so I brought. As well as Drew, and this is totally coincidental because we talked about this afterwards. I also just happened to bring two different beers to the podcast today. Um, both are from Lost Craft Brewing Company, who have I've I've actually brought onto the yeah, podcast yeah. before. One of which is actually the same beer that I was actually drinking on that episode. I think Crimson? it was episode seven or eight. It was Sirius. I did have Crimson. Oh, I think it was one of them. Oh, okay. Sirius is the other one. The this premium pale ale. Uh, it, I mean, the reason I brought it again was because I've been struggling not to bring it ever since I tasted it the first time. I wanted to have some diversity. But if you actually go back and listen on, on the podcast, again, I think it was seven or eight. There was a moment in the middle of the podcast, I've heard it recently, where in the middle of Drew discussing something, I just went, hmm. And that was <laughs> this fucking beer. So I brought Sirius back. Unfortunately, for those who might remember, three quarters of it ended up in my fucking lap at the beginning of the episode. I'm still covered in beer. It feels like I've pissed myself. Um, <laughs> I haven't cleaned it up yet. I just put some paper towels on the ground here. But the second beer I brought, also from Lost Craft Brewing Company, was something I've never heard of before, and it, stu it stood out to me when I looked at it. It says, 
milkshake India Pale Ale. Mm, mm-hmm, and I had mm-hmm. no fucking clue what that meant. Mm. It's called Eclipse with a Z. Okay. Z for you Americans. You um, say it properly. So, so Lost Craft <laughs> uh, apparently really liked Zs in their words, because if I recall, Crimson was also spelled with a Z. Oh, it was, wasn't it? Now that yeah. I think on it. Yeah, but I, I was speaking as, you know, to the to the actual flavor of these beers, I loved the, the series. It's got a lot of... Uh, I mean, it has some citrus, you know, as you would kind of, as I've come to expect with a, with an IPA, but it also had some kind of woody flavor to it as well. Mm. I want to say it was like, uh, uh, I was going to say evergreen pine, something like that. Oh, yeah, because um, it's a pale ale. Yeah, so depending on the hops they'll use in, in, in beers, because um, uh, there, there are a lot of different, uh, you know, types of hops based on yep. where they're they're grown and stuff, and they'll, they'll have different flavor profiles, but... Uh, a pretty classic staple of like the West Coast IPA style is you get like really piney, like juniper Sweet. hops. This has been yeah. flavors of beer with Drew. Fucking love it. Awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the, the milkshake pale ale, believe it or not, was actually lighter in color. I mm-hmm. wasn't ready for that. Um, it was six point zero percent, so I mean it's a little more, it's a little stronger. And honestly, if I'm being totally f- frank, it tasted exactly the fucking same, at least to me. Mm-hmm. Um. But, again, that's a glowing recommendation, considering this is one of the best fucking beers I've ever tasted. And the bottle, uh, the bottle, I should say, the can, of course, is a uh, a very nice kind of brushed white matte kind of minimalistic design. I do kind of like that as well. So, yeah, I would highly recommend Lost Craft. Sirius is fucking phenomenal. Eclipse tasted a lot similar. Still phenomenal. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, So, milkshake IPAs, uh, they tend to be brewed with, like, lactose in them and uh really? and usually will there'll be like a um like a creamier uh color like the they won't be see-through i'm I'm totally blanking on the word i'm, I'm looking for opaque? here opaque yeah yeah not opaque but like um hazy muddy i mean like okay. hazy ipas although yeah, okay, okay. although milkshake ipas don't necessarily have to be like that new england ipa hazy ipa flavor profile like uh like lots of bright tropical fruits pineapple and citrus and mango and stuff like that sweet but, um but yeah yeah there there's like there are a lot of really cool things going on right now in the in the brewing industry around ipas because they're it's like the most popular style by far you know and it has been for years and years mm. and people are getting bored with it so it's like all right well what can we do to change it up and and a couple of years ago that was the new thing was was like the hazy ipas and uh yeah. Sweet. Yeah. What about you, Pat? Um, well, like an idiot, I forgot my beer. Uh-oh. Uh- <laughs> um, I mean, you guys had two apiece. I've been yeah. drinking water this whole time. Oh, man. <laughs> you filled the quota. How, how did you not realize it was a water? Was he drinking out of his fucking horn again? Well, no, no. I just saw an empty <laughs> glass over there. I was oh, like... Oh, okay. I mean, Sweet. my glasses Sweet. usually are empty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, cool. cool know, stuff, yeah, it was a good episode for me to not have anything because you guys had two each to talk about. That was perfect. That kind of worked out. It was like synchronicity. Yeah. But if if I didn't forget my beer where I left it, it would have been a summer shanty. Um, oh yeah, a line and kugels. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which is a real nice, uh, real nice beer. Yeah, it's like a, a wheat ale just blended with lemonade. It's delicious. We had the yeah. first day of 
not quite summer, but of official spring here in Colorado. Oh man, yeah, and it's wonderful. Yeah. So it's exactly like, the kind of beer that one wants. On the day snow like that. from last Thursday is finally melted. Oh and... really? You guys have been like us here? Fuck man, it's mid-May at this point. We're still having like five degrees above. I guess no. For, hold on, for you guys. Yeah. Oh, no, five degrees above still makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Celsius, it's, it's, it's like five like, degrees Celsius. It's like, like it's fucking cold. High thirties, low forties here. You I know. know. Winter won't just fuck off already. Yeah, and, and yeah. It, this happens in Colorado. It's like every other year, it'll just like dump snow yeah. at the beginning of May. Like a, a couple of years ago, when I was in college, I was like, you know, spring semester writing my term papers the first week of May, and there's huge snowstorm blew through Fort Collins, and like a a tree on campus, like the snow is so wet and heavy that a, like a branch of this hundred year old oak tree broke off and crushed oh. the kid. And like you know, they had to shut down the whole campus and everything. And like, yeah, it was, it was ridiculous. But it's like every other year we get this bullshit into May. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. <laughs> but well, but anyway, yeah. my my uh, second beer uh, is a Schwartz beer. This is a German style, like a, a dark German. Uh, you know, it's from Elysian Brewing Company up in Seattle. It's a pumpkin Schwartz beer. And Elysian is known for pumpkin beers. They they generally do really good stuff. I hate to say it, but this particular one was not fantastic. It's probably the oh, worst beer I've brought on the podcast. Um, but it's called Dark Knife. Dark. Oh come on, really? So, yeah, I you I know like I, that. I had to I, like that. I had Where to close off my. <laughs> we did get more context for the the, the name Kane Black Knife in this book, didn't we? Yeah, Lady Tai Shall, how it kind of loosely translates. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, so I I had to close off my Kane beers with that particular one. Uh, Sweet. I I wish I could recommend it, but it it was really kind of meh. The, meh. the pumpkin notes were were absent, and the the base beer itself, the Schwartz beer, was was not even close to the best one I've had. I think this is the first beer I brought on that I, I haven't had at least a, a decent review of. But wow. yeah, it was it hey. was it was thin. That's how you know it you're was, honest. It was uh kind of again kind of acrid like a little little metallic. Just wasn't wasn't what I was expecting from Elysian because I've had some of their pumpkin beers in the past and and had a couple of really good pumpkin beers, but this one was Sweet. not it. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, that's fair enough. So, uh, what are we doing next week, my man? Uh, yeah. So, uh, next week we are going into a 2019 release. So, yeah, we're, we are. We're doing some new stuff here. A science fiction novel by Arcady Martin called "A Memory Called Empire." Yes. And and our current plan is to do the entire book for it. Uh. Although we we may end up going a little long on that episode too, because it's a it's a pretty pretty involved book itself. Um, but yeah, so a memory called Empire. It, it came out just in March, I think, and uh, and and yeah, you know, we're we're trying to get a little more of uh, uh, new releases because we we want to be able to discuss not only some of the classics and some of our old favorites, but we want to stay on top of new trends in science fiction and fantasy and we want to be able to discuss books that maybe people are are seeing advertised now and yeah and are considering whether or not they want to read them and so if if you've seen this book advertised or if you haven't but you're interested in a new you know space opera uh i would, I would definitely recommend you know picking it up 
reading along and uh, listening next week. So, right on. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, this has been 19 episodes now. 19. The next is number Man, 20. We we can almost legally drink, guys. <laughs> well, you can if you live in Canada. Hey. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, add some cheers. <laughs> good, good shit, Canada. Good um, shit. But yeah, uh, as as well, um, kind of news for the podcast. Uh, we we just expanded to Spotify, so we're now we on. I mean, maybe you're listening to this on Spotify, maybe you're not, but we're also on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes. Uh, we're hosted on Player FM and Podcast Addict, so we're we're pretty accessible at this point. Um, you, you have a preferred platform. Uh, reach out to us and let us know if we're not on it. Uh, we are also on Patreon now, uh, as as we heard off the yeah, we top of the podcast. We just had our first uh, $10 tier donor, which is very exciting. Mr. Uh, Simon Jester! Yeah, we, you know, th- this, th- the Patreon helps us uh, pay our awesome sound engineer here, Pat. Hey, and Rob, please, up, Pat? Mrs. Simon Jester. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and um, uh, I suppose, yeah. Oh well, if it's the original Simon Jester, it's neither because it's an it's AI. Neither. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and, and as well as our our fantastic artist Danielle, who's been doing our thumbnails. Uh, you know, Danny in the house. Yeah, we. Hell yes. We Talented really want to be able to fuck. keep this podcast going, paying off the the hosting and paying the people who help us make it happen. So please check us out on Patreon. And uh, other than that, you know, thanks for joining us. I'm Drew McCaffrey. I'm Rob Santos. I'm Patrick. And we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone.